0: Lord, we ask for your favor, your blessing upon your word. I pray your help, Lord, that you'd enable me to be able to communicate clearly the things that I believe you've taught me. We pray that you would open up to our understanding what's taking place in the heavenly realm around the throne of God. We pray, Lord, that you'd fashion us into better worshipers, more biblical worshipers, that we would that we would fashion our earthly worship like the kind that we see going on in heaven, the perfected worship. And so, Lord, please draw near now, in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe that we were made to worship. People are made to worship. That's the reason for our existence. And I think intuitively and instinctively, all people on the planet know that, whether they believe in Christ or not, that's why you see people bowing down in Bible days to blocks of wood and stones. That's why you see people today bowing down to their cars or to their bank accounts or to their spouse or children or grandchildren or dog or cat, you, what have you. People are intrinsically, they are worshipers. They, now, a lot of people don't know the correct object of worship, That's why Romans 1 says that they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So the problem is not that we are made to be worshipers. That's that's correct and that's true. The problem is that we direct our worship in the wrong direction. But I want us to take a look at the right direction and the right object of worship so that it can transform our lives now, here and now. You know, we can speak of Christians as believers. We do that all the time. You could also speak of a Christian as a repenter. You could also speak of a Christian as a follower. That's what a disciple is, a follower of Christ. But you could also speak of a Christian as a worshiper. There's nothing more basic to a person who is a genuine child of God other than the fact that he worships. God through Jesus Christ. That's what makes a person a Christian. He's a worshiper of the true and living God through Jesus Christ. In fact, Christ is an object of his worship as well as the Father because Jesus is God in the flesh. So, where would we go in the Bible if we want to see true worship in all of its perfection? I submit to you, we'd go to the book of Revelation where we see it happening in perfection without any sin without any taint of error, like we see happening here on earth, we would go to where worship is happening without error and without sin, and all of its glory and all of its beauty, and so that's where we want to go, and we're going to start off in chapter 4, because that's the first scene we have of the heavenly throne room in the book of Revelation, there are many others, but this is the first one, have you ever wondered what heaven is like, I sure have. We get glimpses in this book of Revelation of heaven. We have things taking place on earth, and we have an earthly perspective of certain things, but then Revelation shifts between heaven and earth, back and forth, showing us scenes in heaven, and then what's taking place on earth. We're going to take a look at some of these heavenly scenes in the book of Revelation. And as we do that, the, the answers we're going to get about what heaven is like, are going to come to him, come to us in symbols. Not, I I think it would be a mistake for us to try to interpret the book of Revelation in a wooden, literal fashion. If we did that, we would think that Jesus is a sheep, or that he's a lion, or that there is some creature out there that has uh, seven heads and ten horns, or is it ten heads and seven horns, or anyway, (laughs) the, the beast of Revelation chapter 13. Uh, we would we would think that the churches are literal lampstands, and I, I think you understand what I mean. That the devil is a literal dragon. No, these are symbols. The book of Revelation is full of symbols. In fact, in chapter one, verse one. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place, and he sent and communicated it. The word communicated. If you have a King James, it says signified. That's the literal translation of this Greek word. He signified it by his angel to his bondservant, John. The word signified means he showed it to him by using signs. Now a sign is not to be taken literally, a sign points to something else. And he's basically telling us here, the way we are to understand these visions that Jesus had is by understanding the signs or the symbols that are communicated to John. The symbols represent something that is real, and something that is literal. But the symbols themselves are not to be taken literally. So, just keep that in the back of your mind as we read through this. The book of Revelation is what we call apocalyptic, literature and apocalyptic apocalyptic, it's hard to say that word apocalyptic literature uses sensational and dramatic symbols to make its point it'll talk about dragons lions lampstands eating a book creatures that have seven heads and ten horns who stand on the ocean all of these things are we're, we're to look for the meaning behind the symbols not to take the symbols in a wooden literal fashion So, leading up to chapter 4, real quick context. Chapter 1, John sees a vision of the risen, exalted Christ. Chapters 2 and 3, John dictates from Jesus seven letters to seven churches, and these were churches in his own day that he was living in. And Jesus is wanting those people to receive a letter from him. So he dictates it to John. John writes it down. And then an, an angel delivers that message to the, uh, to the angel, the messenger, whoever that was, of these seven churches. And that brings us to chapter 4. After we see the seven letters to the seven churches, chapter 4 says, After these things I looked. So there's a new, a new vision here. After the things of the the vision of the risen Christ in chapter 1, and after the things of the seven letters to the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, there's a new vision. John looked. And this vision that he sees is going to go through chapters 4 and 5. It's one extended vision. He says, Behold, which is an exclamation of wonder and astonishment, I have something incredible to share with you. Behold, I saw something I never saw before, a door standing open in heaven. And it's as if God himself were inviting John to come up through this open door into heaven and see what it's like there. He says, the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet. There in chapter 4, verse 1. And the first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after these things. Now, wh- where, who is this voice of the one that spoke like a trumpet? Who is that? Well, just go back to chapter 1. And look at verse 10. Chapter 1:10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, there it is, saying, write in a book what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, the voice that was like the trumpet, he turned to see that voice. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man. Clothed in a robe, reaching to his feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. And here he gives a description of Christ in symbolic language. But he sees Jesus. So when he turned to see the voice that spoke like a, a trumpet, he saw Christ. So when we come to chapter 4, and it says he heard this voice, like the sound of a trumpet, we're hearing Jesus Christ's voice to John as he, as he says, come up here, I want to show you the things which are going to take place after these things. And he tells him, I want to show you. Come up here and I will show you. In other words, I will reveal to you what must take place after these things. That's why this book is called Revelation. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's how the book starts in chapter 1 verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Not only does it reveal Jesus to us, which it does, but it reveals many other things other than Christ. It is the revelation of Christ, meaning it's His revelation that He discloses to His servant John to give to the church. And he says in chapter 4 verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit... Now, what does he mean? Immediately I was in the Spirit. What does it mean to be in the Spirit? If we compare what we read here with 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it, I think it will help us understand this concept. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul was also in the Spirit and he was caught up to heaven to see things inexpressible. He says in 2 Corinthians 12.1, Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable, but I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ, he's talking about himself, who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I do not know, or out of the body, I do not know. God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So here Paul speaking about an experience that he had, and he has no idea whether his spirit left his body and was caught up to heaven or whether his body went there. He says, I don't know. God knows. I sure don't know what happened. I just know that I was in the I was in the spirit. I was I was in a different dimension than I normally am in. Instead of being a, a time space dimension, I was just caught up to heaven where time and space are no longer that relevant I was in the spirit and I saw things, they're incredible things that I couldn't even express to other people. They were so magnificent and so extraordinary. So Paul was no longer constrained by time or space and perhaps that's what John is talking about when he says, I was in the spirit, caught up into heaven, entered through that open door and I saw things that are very difficult for me to explain to you. A transcendent experience. Now, going back to Revelation 4, I want you to notice certain things from this chapter. The very first thing I want you to notice is the throne. He says in verse 2, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, there's that word again, an exclamation of wonder, I saw something incredible. Behold, a throne was standing in heaven. And one sitting on the throne, the very first thing that he sees in heaven is a throne. the throne fills his gaze, his vision it wasn't all of the angels that he was captivated with he wasn't the glory wasn't the glory of heaven, the streets of gold or all the other things we read about in this book it was the throne and the one sitting on the throne that was the center of his attention in fact. The word throne comes up 11 times in this one chapter. There's only 11 verses to the chapter. John repeats it over and over and over. If you've missed everything else, don't miss the one central fact that this chapter 4 is about a throne and the one sitting on the throne. In fact, in the book of Revelation in its entirety, the word throne comes up 39 times. It's a very dominant thought. We we are intended to see that there is a sovereign king sitting on a throne in heaven. So, when we arrive in heaven, what's going to be our focus? What's going to dazzle our eyes when we get there? What will be the focus of our attention and love and worship? When I talk to people about heaven, a lot of times they tell me the reason they want to go there is because Aunt Maud is there or grandma and grandpa and they want to see their departed relatives or their son died or their brother or sister or sometimes it's some Fifi or Rover, their dog is there and they believe their dog's going to be in heaven. They want to go be and see their dog again. What, 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 why do you want to go to heaven, folks? If it's not because of the one sitting on the throne, you've got the wrong reason to go to heaven. Yeah. Heaven is all about God and Christ the Lamb and the Spirit of God. It's not about our departed relatives. Yes, we will, we will be reunited, and that'll be wonderful, but that is not the glory of heaven. The glory is of God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son. And if you don't want to go to heaven to see him and to worship him and to love him, I wonder whether you've been converted you can't be converted if you don't love Christ and the reason you want to go to heaven is because you love Jesus and you want to be with him and you want to bow down at his feet and give him worship and glory so the glory of heaven is not the streets of gold, the pearly gates the glorious angels it's not Billy Graham or D.L. Moody or Charles Spurgeon or George Whitfield. It's not Augustine or Athanasius or Polycarp. It's not Mary, the mother of Jesus. It is Christ. Christ alone is the king of heaven. Yeah. So let's notice the one who's on the throne. Who is this one? It says in verse 2, and one sitting on the throne. Doesn't tell us anything in verse 2 about this one. It only calls him one, and it calls him he. But if you read on down through the chapter, we finally get to something that describes him in verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 says, And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. Who was and is and is to come. Now here we have a description of the one on the throne. Who is he? He's the Lord God, the Almighty. And he's the one who was and is and is to come. In other words, the one who has no beginning and has no end. He's the one who has all power and can do all that his heart desires to do. The Lord God Almighty. And then verse 9. And when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. There's another description. This one lives forever and ever. So what kind of a person typically sits on a throne? A king does, right? God is the king of heaven and earth. But where is this throne in heaven? Well, look at Revelation 7.15. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. That's where the throne is. It's in a temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Or Revelation 16, verse 17. Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. So here again we read that this, throne is in a temple in heaven, the king is in a temple, well that's interesting because why would a king be in a temple, kings are in palaces, usually, That's earthly kings are in palaces, not in temples, but this king is in a temple, and that's because not only is he a king for us to submit our lives to, but the way we submit to this king is by worshiping him in a temple. He's the object of worship, not only the object of our submission, our obedience. And what does this throne in heaven signify? Well, I think we understand that. It signifies that God is the ruler of heaven and earth. He is the sovereign. Throughout the book of Revelation, John sees from two different vantage points. Sometimes he'll he'll look at from the vantage point of earth, and you'll look at the seven churches on earth and describe what's taking place there. And now here he's caught up into heaven and he sees from a different vantage point, he's looking at what's going on in the heavenlies. So in chapters two and three, he sees earthly things. In chapters four and five, he sees heavenly things. But what I want you to see is that in chapters two and three, the seven churches are being persecuted by the giant power of Rome. They were part of the Roman Empire. Rome had power over all people. And the seven churches were persecuted because they didn't like what the seven churches did. Instead of uh, burning incense to the emperor and calling him God, they refused to do that. They said, only Jesus Christ is Lord. We can only worship him. We will not worship a man. And they were being persecuted. And the idea here is that even though these believers were intimidated... And some are going to die for their faith. God wanted them to know that there's one sitting on a throne. And he rules heaven and earth. And even though they were being persecuted and suffering and dying for their faith. This one on the throne is going to bring his purposes to pass. Nothing is happening apart from him either allowing or ordaining that thing. He's the ruler on the throne. So. Maybe an illustration could help here. Try to think of the war room of the supreme headquarters of the army. Let's say the U.S. is at war with another nation. And in this war room, you've got a really big, large table with a map on it. And someone is placing clusters of little flags on different parts of this map. And we see someone moving these flags from one place to another on the map. And the flags represent units of military command right? Units of soldiers that are placed here, and from when this flag is moved from one position to another, it represents that these soldiers are going to move to a new position in this war effort. So the strange symbols of John's vision are like those flags on the map. And Jesus says to John, I want you to come up here, step into the war room, look at the map on the table. Look at, what I, look at where I'm going to position these markers. The rest of the book of Revelation is the unfolding of the seals of a book. And it shows what takes place on earth as these seals are broken. In other words, God's purposes for human history are going to unfold according to God's plan, not man's. That's why we read in chapter 4 verse 1, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. What must take place. In other words, and whether you understand the book of Revelation to be about the first 100 years, as some people do, they're called preterists, or about all of church history, those are called historists, or about the things at the very end of time, those are called futurists. we got all kinds of different people that believe differently about the book of Revelation. doesn't matter what you believe, whether it's the first century, all of history, or the last century, still God is unfolding his purposes on earth, and those things must take place, because they're part of his ordained plan. So maybe we can make some application, just with this much of our understanding of the book of Revelation. If we have God sitting on a throne in heaven, never despair. All of human history is moving towards his goals and his purposes, no matter how bleak or how dark things may get. And they do sometimes get very dark. There's so much evil in this world. I mean, just think at some of the past rulers. Megalomaniacs, narcissists, people who wanted to rule the entire world and who didn't care about slaughtering millions of people in order to get there. Terrible things have been done on this world. Still, there is a God in heaven who's ruling over the affairs of men. And we just need to remember that. No matter how bleak things get, you have a God who sits on a throne that you can talk to because he can change things, he can do what he, he can fulfill his purposes and he will. He will absolutely do that. In fact, Romans 13.1 says, There is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. doesn't mean God approves of all the things that authorities do, but the fact that there are authorities, that comes from God and established by God. Okay, let's, let's take a look at how God is described. Let's go back to the book of Revelation chapter 4. Verse 3, and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. We'll just stop there. He mentions two gemstones, a jasper stone and a sardius. And he says, God is like those stones. Now, what in the world does he mean by that? How is God like stones? Well... Imagine if you went to Papua New Guinea, the people there, some of them still live in the Stone Age, right? They, they use rocks that they cut and make flints with, as, they use bows and arrows, they have no modern convenience, they don't have electricity there, they're, they're stuck back in a different age. And you went to Papua, Papua New Guinea and um, you tried to explain electricity to them, and you say, I'm going to teach you about electricity today. You don't, you don't have a word for this, so I'm going to teach you a new word, it's called electricity. <laughs> it's kind of like a powerful spirit that runs along hard things that are kind of like vines. That you str- We stretch them from tree to tree. Well actually, we chop down the tree, we cut off all its branches and we put it back in the ground so we can hang these hard vines on those trees and we can string them from tree to tree And then this powerful spirit can travel really fast through those hard vines. And on one end of these really hard vines is a place where we pump this spirit. And we can connect them to a special box in your mud hut. (laughs) And if you connect those vines to your thatched roof, the spirit will go in there so you can have your own little sun in your mud hut. (laughs) That's good. Now, <laughs> now we haven't said anything about protons, neutrons, ohms, volts, amps, or semiconductors, because they have no category for any of those things. But these tribes people are utterly clueless about what you're talking about when you say electricity. What's the matter? Are they stupid? No, they're not stupid. They lack, there's an utter lack of experience in the area of electricity. They've never seen or heard of it in their life. They, they, don't, they can't even imagine what you're talking about. That's kind of like John in heaven. Jesus is trying to describe to him what God is like. And John, to describe him to us, says he's like a sardius and he's like a jasper stone. He, He can't really tell us what God is like because it's beyond our experience. So he says he's like this and he's like that. So jasper, what kind of a stone was jasper? It's the closest thing we have to compare jasper with would be a diamond. In chapter 21, verse 11, it says, The holy city coming down from heaven from God, having the glory of God, her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. So the heavenly Jerusalem coming down from heaven, John describes it as being crystal clear kind of like a diamond that reflects and refracts light from it, translucent. Maybe like ice or a clear mountain lake, almost like Lake Tahoe, that you can see so far into the depths of Tahoe, it's so clear. Try to, try to get these images in your mind maybe for this stone and how it might resemble God. A diamond reflects and reflects light. It sparkles, it shimmers, it's transparent. Light passes, passes through it so easily it can be painful to the eye when you look because of the light that go, goes through this stone. And Sardius, what's a Sardius stone? This was a red stone. It had a blood red color and when light passed through this stone it looked like a smoldering fire. Now that I think, I think I'm on the right track When we say God is like these stones. Because in the rest of of the Bible. We read that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. We read that God dwells in unapproachable light. We read that God wraps himself in light as with a garment. That's Psalm 104 verse 2. God's clothing is his glory. His radiance. The outshining of his effulgence. God appeared to Moses as a burning bush. He appeared to Israel as a fire by night. He appeared to Paul as a very bright light at noonday. The angels that stand in the presence of God appear to us as glorious shining creatures. They have something of the glory of God on them and so they dazzle us and make us afraid when they actually appear to us. Even Moses' face, after he had been in the very presence of God and he came down from the mountain, his face glowed with the glory of God. So, if there's anything that we, God doesn't have a body like us. Christ does, but God the Father is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. So, the only way He he appears to us in any sense is this glorious, blinding light. And the jasper and the sardius stones must represent then the beauty and the splendor and the glory of God. John's trying to describe the indescribable, he's doing the best he can. And the best he can do is compare God's brilliance to the most beautiful and dazzling of gemstones that he knows anything about. So God on his throne must have appeared to John as powerful and majestic light reflecting and refracting off of these precious stones and filling all of heaven with his glory. So here's the point. God is the entrancing focus of all of heaven. Not our deceased friends or relatives, not the holy angels, not the streets of gold, the pearly gates, or anything else. It's God and God alone. And that's what the believer longs for. Now let's notice what is around the throne. We've noticed the throne and we've noticed the one sitting on the throne. But now what's going on around that throne? Verse 4. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. Now this is where we're going to end up today in verse 4. 24 thrones with 24 elders sitting on those 24 thrones, they're clothed in white garments and they have golden crowns on their heads. Uh, I think I neglected to mention the rainbow in verse 3. Let's talk about that first before we get to the 24 thrones. Because verse 3 says, There was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Now, emeralds are green. So this is an unusual rainbow. It's green. There's greenish hues to it. Instead of all the spectrums of the colors, it seems like this has a a greenish appearance to it. And it doesn't appear to be a partial rainbow, like what we see on a, it's rain, and then the sun comes out and we see a rainbow, it's like an arc, a half circle. It appears that this is like a halo, a full rainbow around the throne. It goes all the way around this throne. And what immediately comes to your mind when you think about a rainbow? Think biblically. Genesis 7, 8, 9, somewhere in there. There is a rainbow that God says, I'm going to give a sign of this covenant that I'm never going to destroy the earth again with a flood, and that sign is going to be the rainbow. Yeah. So, the rainbow is a sign. Again, that's what uh, Jesus is communicating to John signs, symbols. The rainbow was a symbol of something, um, it's a bow. Hung up in the sky, actually. But why a bow? To an ancient person in Noah's day, what did a bow represent? A weapon of war. That's what you hunted game with, or what you defended yourself with. This weapon. So we have a weapon of war hung up in the sky as a symbol that God will no longer destroy the earth with a flood. After a war had been waged and won, what did the ancient peoples do with their bows when they no longer needed them to defend themselves? Then hang them up on their walls like a mantle That's what God is doing. He's hanging up his bow his weapon of war He had just destroyed the world he poured out his wrath on this world destroying uh, every human being except for Noah and his family and then he says I'm gonna hang my bow up in the sky And that's a sign to you of my covenant with the world. I'm never going to destroy this world again by flood. It won't happen because of my covenant. So God's weary and persecuted people take heart. They will never know the storm of God's wrath. They look at this rainbow there in heaven surrounding the throne and it's a sign of the covenant that they have entered into by faith in Jesus Christ that God will never pour out his wrath on them. They are safe forever in heaven. They are beyond the realm where God will uh, hurl his wrath on them. They are out of the reach of hell. They are in heaven forever with Christ. Okay, so there we've got the rainbow. Let's talk about the 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones. Who are these people? (laughs) Um, I believe they're God's royal entourage, his kingly retinue. When someone in royalty makes their official public appearance, they don't do so alone. They've got these public attendants that follow them and go with them, sort of their, their vice regents. So who are these vice regents or these people that attend God sitting on thrones? That's interesting. You've got this major throne that is the focus of heaven, but you've also got 24 thrones surrounding that big throne, the major throne. We only really have two options as far as I can see about who can be on these thrones. They're either going to be angels or men. I don't know of any other kind of creatures God has made. If he's made any more, I don't know that he's revealed it to us. So, angels are men. Let's, let's take angels, first of all. Do we ever read of angels in Scripture seated on thrones? Can you think of any passage in Scripture where they're on thrones? No. The Bible says their, their function is to serve, not to rule. Hebrews 1.14 says, Angels are ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. Do you ever see angels sitting in the Bible? No, they're always flying here or there to do God's will. Do we ever read of them wearing crowns in Scripture? No. What about the saints? Do we ever see the saints on thrones? We'll go back in Revelation chapter 3, verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. As I also came and sat down with my father on his throne. So yeah, in the Bible we do read about the saints sitting on thrones. Do you ever see believers wearing white garments? Look at chapter three, verse five. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Yes, the saints are clothed in white garments. Do we ever see the saints wearing crowns? Look at chapter 2, verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So we see believers sitting on thrones, clothed in white garments, and wearing crowns. So I'm convinced that these 24 elders represent Christians, not angels. They're never promised to angels. They are promised to believers who overcome. So, but why Why 24 of them? Why are there 24 elders? I, there's two possibilities, but I think one of them is seems to me much more likely. And I'll just give you that one. I I think it it represents the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament, the sons of Israel, and the 12 apostles of the New Testament as representing Old Testament and New Testament believers. All the saints of all the ages are sitting around this throne represented in those 24 elders. That, That makes sense to me. Some have also speculated, well, maybe he's referring to 1 Corinthians 24 and 25 because in 1 Corinthians 24, Uh, David had all the priests divided into 24 different divisions. And then in the next chapter, 1 Chronicles 25, he had all the musicians and singers divided into 24 divisions. And because believers in the book of Revelation are called priests and worshipers, that maybe he's referring to, to that, that in the Old Testament... The priest and the worshiper, there's 24 divisions of them. Here we have in the book of Revelation, 24 elders representing those who are priests and worshipers in heaven. It, that's possible also. So this picture of the 24 elders is a picture of you and me. Are you a Christian? Are you a saint of God? Are you redeemed by his blood? Do you love your master, the Lord Jesus Christ? If you do, this represents you. You're sitting around the throne in white garments representing the spotless purity and righteousness of Jesus Christ that covers you forever. You have a crown on your head representing royalty because you are a son of the king of kings and lord of lords. You're a prince. And uh, what was the last one I mentioned? Okay, crowns, white garments, and thrones. Okay, we've covered them all. We're, we're on the, these thrones also representing that, that we're exercising authority. So, we're seen, we're seen sitting on thrones. Why would a believer be pictured in heaven as sitting on a throne? God is a ruler, but what about believers? Well, turn in your Bible over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because I have a feeling if I just say this, you won't believe me. It, it, it is actually in your Bible. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Saints, that's me and you. Judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts, like when your brother goes, wants to go to take another brother to court, aren't there saints in the church that can handle that, he's saying? Because you're going to judge the world, can't you help believers settle their disputes now? And then verse 3, don't you know that we will judge angels? So according to God's word, the saints are going to judge the world, and they're going to judge angels. Exactly how that's going to look, and what that's going to be like, I don't know. Maybe we will, under God's authority, maybe we will have some kind of a role when it comes to him judging. It sounds like it to me. So we're on thrones because we have a a delegated authority in heaven. We're wearing white garments because we have been dressed and robed in the pure, spotless, perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're not wearing black, and we're not wearing gray. We're wearing white, just like a woman on her wedding day with that white garment, signifying, it was supposed to signify her absolute purity, that she's never known a man. That's what that white wedding dress is supposed to represent. Well, we're dressed in white because we are the bride. We are pure and spotless in his sight. And they're wearing golden crowns because they're royalty. They're princes under God. Romans 8.18 says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or 1 Peter 1.7, our faith will be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't think that's talking about the praise, glory, and honor of Jesus. I think it's talking about the praise, glory, and honor that will come to the saints when he returns. Of course, it is true that the saints are gonna give him praise, glory, and honor. That's, I don't even know that I need to mention that. Of course, we do that now, we're gonna do that forever. But when Christ returns, he's going to honor his faithful saints who have stood by him and have been faithful unto death. And many of them have died for their faith, being burned at the stake, or stoned to death, or lit up in Nero's garden as human torches. Horrible things have been done to Christians over the centuries, and God is gonna honor those faithful saints. So do you understand what God's going to do for you? If you are faithful until death, he's going to give you glory, honor, and power. You will be one of those seated on a throne. He's going to grant you a crown to wear. Um, you're going to be dressed in white garments. I mean, you, it's, it's almost unimaginable, isn't it? When we think about our, our corruption, our sinfulness, the way we... The way we fail so often, and we're, we have this corrupt nature we've inherited, and we fight with it our whole life, and we wonder, how is it possible? He could picture me as someone sitting on a throne with a crown on his head, clothed in white garments. That's your destiny, child of God. This is your destiny. You need to believe this. This is, this is where you're headed. And God who starts a good work will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He's the author and perfecter of your faith. You can count on him to bring you to the end and cause this to take place. Never despair of your own sinfulness. Get your eyes off of your sin and onto Jesus Christ, the one who can change you and perfect you. So that's what I, that was my burden this morning, just to share something of the throne room so that we can then worship together as a church family. And I hope from week to week as we look into heaven, it's just going to help us become better worshipers and more excited about spending time just before the Lord worshiping Him.